Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan, and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. Thank you so much for joining us once again, everybody, um, and for joining us for our next episode. Yeah, thank you for coming back. Uh, it was quite a harrowing episode last week. Uh, thanks to everybody who's got in touch regarding the episode. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us about any of our past episodes or this episode, then you can find us on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and also on Patreon as well. You can get in touch with us there if you're a patron of the show. Um, on that note, let's uh, say a huge thank you to uh, the most recent patrons. Uh, these are the people who have signed up in the last week to support the show. So thank you to you guys. Uh, we have Billy B. Bolger, Morelli's Reeds, Keely Walters, Sandy Keane, uh, Daniel Blackburn, Sam, Karen Spillane, Jem Smith, and then Denise Boyle and Erica Gray, who have signed up annually. Thank you so much. Um, I had to write all those names down in a Sharpie, so I couldn't quite read them very well. Uh, hopefully I've not mispronounced them, but thank you so much for signing up. If you would like to join these guys, then you can find us at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And we've got a whole wealth of fun shit going off over there. So do check it out and support us if you can. A whole wealth of fun shit. Thank you so much, everybody. It really does mean the world to us. So thank you. This week, I have chosen to cover a case that was requested by Victoria Noble back in September. I haven't actually told her that we're doing this, so hopefully it's a nice surprise for her. Um... Honestly, it's like something out of a horror movie. I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard of this story before and it could actually just give you nightmares. It is like a movie. I am going to be taking you back to the 60s and to Chicago to one absolutely shocking night of terror. God, I'm intrigued. I'm ready to be scared. What an introduction, eh? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I'm looking forward to it or not, but um, Mm. yeah, it's, it's giving me the feels already. It is a really, really mad one. Um, we don't do like kind of warnings and stuff, do we? We don't tend to, but, but this is very, very brutal. So just a bit of a fair warning for everybody. There's a, there's a lot of, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And there's a lot, there are going to be a few references to rape as well. So if that's something that's not going to be something you can listen to, this may not be the episode for you. That's, um, that's two episodes on the bounce where we've had to issue a warning now because, uh, last know. week's episode was really graphic as well in terms of the violence. So. It's difficult because people know what we're about. We're a true crime podcast, you know, it's going to be true crime. Um, I've tried not to go into too much detail as well, so hopefully it's not it's not too graphic. But it is a very, very scary story. <laughs> Richard Speck was born in Kirkwood, Illinois on December the 6th, 1941 to parents Benjamin and Mary. He was the seventh child of eight siblings in a really religious family and he was a lot younger than his older four sisters and two brothers. His dad was a hard worker, had been a farmer, a logger and he'd worked as a packer at Western Stoneware and the father and son were really close. So it really hit Speck when his dad died from a heart attack in 1947 and Speck was just six years old. A couple of years later, his mum met and married Carl Lindbergh, a travelling insurance salesman with a criminal record. So he's been described as the opposite of Speck's sober, hard-working father. Lindbergh had been arrested for forgery. He'd been arrested for driving under the influence. He was a drunk who would beat his young stepson. And he would also psychologically abuse Speck with insults. Speck and his younger sister moved with their mum to go and live with Lindbergh in Dallas. And in the space of a dozen years or so, they lived at 10 addresses in poor neighbourhoods. And Speck absolutely despised his stepdad, who was either drunk or absent. 
And I really felt for him because it really does sound like he is just the opposite of his dad. I find that weird, though, because um, you'd almost think his mum would have a type and these are these two men. So her first husband's died and he's like the polar opposite of this guy that she goes on to marry. I just find that weird that she would initially be with someone who was like really hardworking and sober and a good dad. And then she goes for the complete opposite. But I guess after her first husband had died, she was probably really vulnerable. And um, maybe this guy took advantage of that Lindbergh. Yeah, potentially. And maybe she just wasn't as much of a catch because I mean, I know she had eight children, but the older ones were all kind of married or, or living on their own. So she had, but she had two children that were quite young. So, so Speck struggled in school. He began drinking at the age of 12 and by 15, he was getting drunk every day. His first arrest was at the age of 13 for trespassing. He dropped out of education just after his 16th birthday with no qualifications. And he had dozens of misdemeanor arrests over his teenage years. He got a job as a labourer for about three years from 1960. And he met 15-year-old Shirley Malone in October 1961 at the Texas State Fair. She fell pregnant within three weeks of dating him and they got married in January 1962 and the newlyweds moved in with Speck's mum, his sister and his sister's husband. And the mean stepdad had by this point moved away. Probably unsurprisingly, the pair didn't have the best marriage. So Speck, who was been he's been drinking for years, when his daughter was born, Shirley didn't even know where he was, and it turned out he was serving a 22-day jail sentence for disturbing the peace after a drunken brawl, and he was also an abusive husband to his young wife. It makes you wonder what the difference of father figure might have changed. Yeah. You never know for definite, but... No, but it it does seem that had his dad not died, which I know is like a ridiculous thing to say, but had his dad not died, uh, Speck might have turned out a completely different person. It obviously really scarred him if he was, what was he, like six years old? Yeah, I mean, that's that's really going to damage you, isn't it? In July 1963, Speck was sentenced to three years in prison for forgery and burglary after forging and cashing in a co-worker's paycheck and for stealing cigarettes, beer and cash from a grocery store. He and his wife separated and he served 16 months before being paroled. And a week after he was paroled, Speck attacked a woman in a car park with a 17-inch carving knife. And luckily this woman did get away. She screamed and somebody called the police. Speck fled, but he was caught just a few blocks away. He was convicted of aggravated assault and sentenced to 16 months to run concurrently with his parole violation sentence. And then he was returned to prison but there was an administrative error that occurred. So Speck was released just six months later. And I'm not going to go into all the things that happened with Speck over the following years in detail, but here's a kind of rundown of some of the key points to give you a real example of what this guy was like. He worked as a driver and had six accidents in his truck before he was fired for failing to show up for work. He moved in with a woman who was a bartender at his favourite bar. Um, And I, I kind of read that she needed someone to babysit her children and also that she was used to be a wrestler, which I thought was quite fun. She used to be a professional wrestler, but now she worked in a bar. She sounds scary. His, she sounds a bit scary, doesn't she? His wife filed for divorce, probably unsurprisingly. Um, he stabbed a man in a bar fight. He was jailed for failing to pay a fine. He burgled a grocery store. And eventually he fled to Chicago to go and stay with his sister. In March 1966, he moved into the Christie Hotel and he spent most of his time in local bars. 
He then threatened a man with a knife in the toilets. He also broke into a 65-year-old woman's house and raped her and then ransacked her house. And he burgled a number of homes. He also murdered a barmaid who was found having been killed with a blow to her abdomen that had ruptured her liver. So he's violent, aggressive, but also a big guy as well. So he's got strength behind him. In April, he went to go stay with his sister and her husband. And her husband basically decided that he needed to help his brother-in-law. So he took Speck to sign up for the US Coast Guard because the brother-in-law had previously served in the US Navy. And he thought that this kind of routine and a bit of kind of structure would really help Speck to settle down. The application required being fingerprinted, photographed and having a physical examination by a doctor. And then Speck had a job. He joined a lake freighter with a crew of 33. But after his first voyage, he was hospitalised with appendicitis. And this kind of seemed to set a precedent at this point because when he tried to then return to the ship, he got really, really drunk and had an argument with one of the officers Um, So he was kicked off, which I thought was a real shame because he kind of tried to get that job and he'd worked quite hard to to find something new. I I get that. But part of me is kind of like if it wasn't getting appendicitis, going and getting that fixed and then getting pissed and getting in a row with with one of the colleagues on the ship, it would have been something else uh, pretty soon after that. There was always yeah. going to be something because he, he just couldn't, from the sounds of it, he couldn't behave for more than five minutes. Yeah, he really reminds me of somebody that I think you know who I'm talking about when I say, like, can't keep his mouth shut and just gets into arguments and potentially fights. I know exactly who you mean. Yeah. Um, is he still alive? He is. Okay, and actually doing a lot surprising. better himself, which is really, oh, really nice. Oh, that's really pleasing. Yeah. 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 Anywho, sorry, listeners. For our little yeah, aside. little pri- private little story there. <laughs> yeah, a little private conversation, just none of you know. Yeah. So after this, Speck travelled to Michigan and he visited a nurse's aide that he had made friends with in hospital. And so he must have been reasonably charming or something because he kind of went and stayed with her for a bit and visited. She then gave him some money to help him out and he went back to his sister. And I kind of think, do you know what? His sister just seems like an absolute gem. She really tried to help him as much as she could. And her husband as well. You and know, her he's clearly he's clearly on board trying to help. But I think you're right, with Speck, there must be something there. There must be some kind of charm or um something that uh attracts him to well, these these women are then attracted to him because he's he's quite able to uh, move from woman to woman and and take advantage of their hospi- hospitality and money and stuff. Yeah. See, he had quite a lot of annoyance over the next few weeks. So his brother-in-law would drive him to the National Maritime Union, um, the hiring hall for there, on a number of occasions. But he kept missing out on jobs. So either he'd miss out on a job to a more experienced sailor or simply because his spot had been given away. It was really common to offer a job to two potential sailors because basically the type of men that you're offering these jobs to are quite transient, so they may not turn up. But this meant then quite often he'd get there and the other guy had turned up two minutes earlier and he'd lose out, so he was getting really, really frustrated. He had totally outstayed his welcome at his sister's house, so he then had to get rooms to stay in while he tried to get work on board a ship. And at one point, he had no money for a room for the night, so he actually ended up sleeping in a half-built house. So I do feel a bit sorry for him, yeah. 
yeah, but, but I, he's only I got himself to blame. Him, can I? Yeah, exactly. No, and I'm, I'm like really worried about what's coming because mm-hmm. uh, you said it's quite kind of um, scary. So, uh, yeah, I'm guessing there's something pretty horrific coming up, and I'm, I'm yeah. guessing he's heavily involved in that. I think he's just drinking and drinking and drinking and taking drugs, and then like getting more and more angry and straight, you know, frustrated at the world. Fucking hell, Bethan! This this so reminds me of. That person who we shall not name. I drinking. don't think he'd ever do anything like this, though. Well, no, but drinking, taking drugs, getting really, really angry with the whole world and everybody in it. Yeah. And on Wednesday, the 13th of July, things kind of came to a head. Speck began drinking early in the day. He was really angry about being sent to a non-existent job opportunity. And so he forced a 53-year-old woman from one of the bars that he was in back to his room raped her and stole her gun before continuing on his drinking binge. Speck continued drinking till about 10.20pm, at which point he left dressed entirely in black, armed with the gun from the woman that he had raped and robbed, as well as a pocket knife and a hunting knife. Definitely drunk, and according to Speck himself, also high on drugs, he decided to commit a routine burglary of a nurse's home a mile and a half away. The townhouse was a dormitory for student nurses and there was a number of women that were there that night. An incredibly brave woman called Cora gave in-depth statements and testimony. So a lot of what I'm going to be telling you now comes from her directly as well as from the investigations afterwards. So it's late at night and Cora heard four knocks at the front door of the building and she went down to go open the front door. Speck was stood there pointing the gun at her and she froze He kind of pushed her back into the house and demanded to know where the other women were. A woman called Melita had come to see what was happening and Speck marched both women upstairs and down the corridor to a large bedroom at the back. And in this room, there were three more women who were asleep and also a woman called Valentina who was awake by this point. So Cora and Melita ran and hid in a closet, but Speck assured them that he wasn't there to hurt him. And so um, he kind of managed to coax them to come out. Pointing the gun at Nina and Pat whilst holding Pamela around the waist, Speck made the women sit in a semicircle and one by one they just had to go and get their purses and give them, give kind of all the money that they had available to him and the whole time he sat there just smiling as if he was like one of the group, like one of their little friends. How creepy is that? It's, it's also like really awkward as well, isn't it? It's so bizarre. I don't know, like the whole thing, like when she opens the door and she's just got this tall, imposing guy and dressed all in black and he's just pointing a gun at her. That must have been absolutely terrifying. Oh, my God. I mean, I can't imagine it. I had a really weird dream last night where I was in some like pub and obviously like it was empty because I suppose all pubs are kind of empty inside. But I was inside the pub and I was waiting for somebody like someone was after me and I was waiting for them to come in through the door. And I was there with a double barreled shotgun pointing at the door, waiting for them to come in. And I was just thinking, like, I really don't want to have to shoot them, but I'm going to have to shoot them. And I was oh, scared in that position. Horrible. So, yeah, so, like, being uh, being on the receiving end of that is even worse, isn't it? God. So he's kind of there with all these women and um, making them go off one by one. And a little while later, a woman called Gloria got home from a date. She stumbled her way upstairs because she was quite drunk, opened the bedroom door, and seeing what was going on and seeing the gun, she kind of screamed and was forced to then join the circle. 
At this point, Speck began to rip a sheet from one of the beds into strips, and then he proceeded to tie each woman up by her ankles and her wrists. Marianne and Suzanne had been out, and they arrived home, headed to their room, and at this point they discovered Speck hovering over Pamela, who was tied up and also now gagged. The other women were kind of all in the main bedroom, and when Marianne and Suzanne saw them, they just started screaming in terror. Speck chased them, and when he caught up to them, he stabbed them. As they fought back, he strangled them. Suzanne sustained 18 stab wounds and was found with stockings around her neck, and Marianne had been stabbed three times to the chest, once in the eye and once in the neck. Once they were dead, he kind of just discarded their bodies and returned to Pamela, and with one stab to the heart, he killed her. That is just brutal, isn't it? I mean, he, I mean, awful uh, what happened, but just in particular, stabbing somebody in the eye and how that would look afterwards, the damage that that would do, that would that would be really gruesome to to see that person afterwards. I know that's an obvious thing to say, but yeah, you don't quite appreciate the damage that that would actually do. And it's interesting, isn't it? The bits that kind of hit people differently as well. Like for yeah. you, that's something that's really stuck with you. Yeah. So he made his way back to the main room with the group of nurses and he picked his next victim, Nina. The women had kind of tried to squeeze themselves under the narrow bunk beds to hide, but Speck kind of grabbed her ankles and pulled her out by her feet first. He led her to another bedroom where he yanked her nightdress up to her neck, stabbed her in the neck and then suffocated her with a pillow. Cora was just struggling to hide as far under the bunk as she could up against the wall. Speck marched back in. He lifted Valentina up so easily and just carried her out of the room. Cora heard sounds of water and then Speck returned, this time grabbing Melita. She cried out, it hurts, as he took her and then half an hour passed. Melita was later found discarded on top of Valentina and she had been stabbed and strangled and Valentina's throat had been slashed. So this half an hour passed and he came back and he took Patricia. He led her to the bathroom and made a comment about seeing her at some point wearing a yellow dress one time before and then dragged her off. He punched her in the stomach, rupturing her liver and he strangled her and she was discovered with her nightgown rolled up, her underwear pulled down and just surrounded by bloody towels. Next, he made his way over to Gloria who was by this point asleep from all the alcohol that she'd been drinking and he began to rape her. Cora closed her eyes and prayed, just listening to the bed springs. When she opened her eyes, Speck and Gloria were gone, and he had dragged Gloria downstairs, ripping her blouse off as they went down the stairs, throwing it on the floor, buttons kind of everywhere, and then he'd shoved her onto a couch where he'd killed her. When she realised that Speck had gone downstairs with Gloria, Cora decided to switch beds. She rolled out kind of from the one that she was under, made her way frantically across the floor to a new bed, one where she could get right up against the wall. And she stayed there until the early hours, not knowing whether Speck was still in the house or not, terrified to emerge in case he was there waiting for her. Maybe he'd lost count of how many women who'd been there, but basically Cora somehow managed to survive this night of terror because Speck had fled in a drink and drug fueled haze. And just after 5.30am, she climbed out of her bedroom window onto a ledge and began screaming for help. Across the road, Judy had decided to get up early to study when she heard what she thought was an animal crying outside. And when she heard the noise again, she looked out and saw Cora on the ledge. Cora cried out to her, They're all dead. All of my friends are dead. And Judy rushed into the house where she then saw Gloria. 
nude, tied up, her skin blue, her head hanging off the side of the couch. So Judy ran to the house mother and yelled out, there's trouble in 19, and the house mother and some of the other student nurses came running. Cora leapt from the ledge and stood on the outer stairs of the house saying everybody had been killed and that people shouldn't go in because the killer could still be inside. One of the student nurses, Leona, went in and searched the house and she found the bodies and while she did know all of the women so well, the blood that covered the scene and their faces meant she only recognised Nina. She came downstairs, made her way outside and told the house mother to ring for help and the house mother rang the hospital and said all of the young women were dead. I can't imagine to think what that scene would have looked like, the amount of blood that would have been everywhere. And if you stab somebody in the neck quite often, or certainly in the heart, the blood doesn't just kind of like pour out. It literally spurts out. Uh, You know, it will spurt six feet into the air. So there would have been blood all over the walls, possibly over the ceiling, certainly all over the floor. Uh, It just would have been the most gruesome scene that you can imagine, I think. I think the worst bit for me is the one by one, like coming back and just taking them. And Cora's there, like listening each time he comes back and then goes and then come. You're just waiting for it to be you that's grabbed next. I was going to say the whole time she is literally thinking, when, when when's it going to be me? And it is going to be me next or at some point because he one by one he's picking us off and he's killing us and I can hear that happening and she knows he's coming for her. And obviously this is in the 60s, so there's no mobile phones. There's no way of really getting any sort of help because he's there and you're all tied up. And it's the middle of the night as well. And it's the middle of the night. So someone flagged down a young patrolman who was on his route. He headed inside with his gun drawn and he found all the bodies. And he was actually really shocked to recognise Gloria because he dated her sister. He did a search of the house before radioing in from his car. And so reportedly on the radio, he said, help, help, help. Oh my God, I dated her sister. Oh my God, I've never seen nothing like this. Give me the sergeant. Give me my lieutenant. Oh God. And he was just hysterical. The dispatcher kept saying, where are you? Where are you? But he couldn't say much more than just, oh my God, they're all dead. He had been on the job for just 18 months and he'd come across this. And finally he was able to give the address and backup was sent. I I suppose he was like just just in massive shock, wasn't he, in terms of what he'd seen? So yeah, you're just not going to make any sense. You you can't begin to even process what's happened. So you're just talking gibberish, really. He was. And people have said that Officer Kelly basically was like pacing around in a circle, just walking back and forth, just going, oh, my God, oh, my God. And there was a journalist called Joe who'd been driving around listening out on the police radios and he heard Officer Kelly's cries for help. Because he was only a block away, he rushed to the scene And this is so 60s, like it wouldn't happen nowadays. But he basically said to Kelly, I'm not going to touch anything, but I need to go inside. Like, what's going on? And Officer Kelly just couldn't answer. He just couldn't speak. Joe couldn't quite understand why a police officer was so distressed. Like, seeing Gloria was really, really shocking. Um, But this wasn't the first time a woman had been murdered. And and Joe was kind of like, "What, what are you going on about? So he came back out, said to Officer Kelly, like, why are you, why are you so hysterical? Officer Kelly just literally looked at him blankly and said, go upstairs. So Joe went back into the house and it was at this point that he realised the full extent. So he said in all of his years working in Chicago, he had never seen such brutality, even covering an aeroplane crash with bodies everywhere. 
And then he began to repeat the same thing as Officer Kelly. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Rushed out and just threw up on the floor. And he spoke to Officer Kelly again and said, what was that strange noise? And Officer Kelly explained that it was Cora. She was just making this, like, animal noise, crying on a nearby sofa. And they were trying to sedate her. People around her were just trying to calm her down. Joe had only been there six minutes, but he'd just seen enough. He radioed his station, reported back that eight student nurses had been stabbed to death, and they said that the story was going to run on the 6am news. He went back into the house, but he was sickened to realise he was squelching in the blood on the carpet, so he ran back outside and threw up again. And the police who arrived kind of laughed and joked at him. They were saying, hey Joe, what's the matter? You can't take it, you must be getting old. And then they went inside and it all just stopped. And many of them kind of rushed back outside to kind of join him. These are seasoned Chicago police officers and they rushed out to be sick because they just couldn't cope with, like you said, the blood all over the walls and the doors and the floor and the smell and the brutality as well. Yeah, and I was going to say, you're absolutely right to include the smell because it's not just what you can see when that much blood has been spilled it is like a really unique smell and it would just permeate the air. The um, journalist Joe had said in a in a quote to some media that he'd been at the site of a plane crash where there were so many more bodies and this was yet way more shocking. It was the worst thing he ever saw in his life. And a plane crash is brutal because it depends on the nature of it exactly, but usually the kind of injuries sustained as a result of a plane crash are catastrophic and you would see awful things that you you can't imagine so that really is saying something if he's come Mm -hmm. to plane crash could kind of deal with that and this is the thing that that has kind of tipped him over the edge and made him physically sick I can yeah I just I, I can kind of imagine the scene in my head but and it's horrific and even that is probably not doing justice to to what actually presented uh to them mm-hmm The police methodically searched the house, so they found Gloria Davy, then Pamela Wilkinen, Suzanne Farris, Marianne Jordan, Nina Schmey, Valentina Pazin, Melita Gargulo, and finally Patricia Matsek. And it was the worst crime that the seasoned detective in charge of the investigation said he'd ever seen. Eight patrol wagons arrived and the county coroner released the bodies one by one. The house was sealed And then the crime lab began their work. Thanks to Cora's statements, they had sketches and descriptions of the wanted man. And obviously she spent quite a lot of time in his presence. So they had his accent and all sorts. So these were then circulated around the media and published in the papers. I'm surprised that she was even able able to speak, though, let alone um, give descriptions of characteristics of, of him. It's incredible, uh, isn't it? Yeah, she's you just, amazing. You think that she'd just be in so much shock. I mean, everyone's different, aren't they? But yeah, I, I, I just kind of imagine you put yourself in that scene, don't you? And you think I, I wouldn't be able to speak for some time after that mm-hmm. because I'd literally just be in shock. I know. The police were on the hunt for their killer immediately. They had a description of a man six feet tall with blonde hair, 160 pounds, with a southern drawl. And they worked on the hunch that the killer had to be a local because the house was not an easy target. It wasn't something you'd know about unless you were local. An attendant at a gas station nearby remembered hearing about a guy that had left his bags at the station two days before complaining about missing a ship and losing out on a job that kind of matched that 
description. And the police team also checked out the Merchant Marine Union Hall, which was walking distance from the townhouse. And there an agent remembered an irate seaman who had lost out on a double booking. Both people said that this man matched the police's description of the wanted killer. And the union agent was even able to find Speck's name on a thrown away assignment sheet. So when he turned up to that job and he couldn't get it, they just scrunched it up and thrown it in a bin. And luckily it was still there. Speck matched the description perfectly. So they kind of checked with the department to see if he had a record, but nothing showed up locally. Later on, a smudged fingerprint that was found at the scene was followed by a really clear one. So they then began to look into who this belonged to. And Speck, on the other hand, had just arrived back at his room and chose to get back kind of to his usual hobby of drinking. So he arrived at the bar about 10.30am, having had a rest. He'd got himself cleaned up. And when he got to the bar, he had a knife hanging from his belt, although not the knife from the murders, and he began sharing tall tales, at one point even sneaking behind the barman to pretend to cut his throat. The barman got really mad, but Speck just kind of laughed it off, saying it's just a joke, but the barman was having none of it, so kind of made them leave, and they went to a new bar to drink. And it was at this point that Speck heard the first reports of the murders, and that he heard for the first time that he'd left a witness alive. He um, said something weird as well. He was like, oh, this, you know, what a, what a dirty guy to do something like that. And you just think, like, why are you even passing comment? Like, wouldn't and you also, keep your head down? Yeah, but also, like, what, what, I mean, what a weird word to use. What a dirty guy. Like, I can think of different adjectives to describe this perpetrator himself it's just a weird description um i think that's really interesting though the the fact that he's realized that he's left a witness uh alive and he's kind of uh messed things up a bit really and um i suppose awful as it sounds he's, he's kind of forgotten to kill somebody that was there and had it not been for her then he might have got away with this because she's obviously the one that gives the description and the police did some really good quick work which enabled them to uh, find out who the guy was. So had it not been for her with that description, I don't. They he might have got away with this and he must have been knowing that at the time. He must have thought, oh God, I'm, I'm screwed now. I mean, I don't know if that comes out in, in the next bit, but if it was me, I'd be thinking, oh, that's it now. They're, they're going to be on to me. Yeah, and I think because he'd been caught after other crimes and they found loads of things that he'd burgled from people's houses that he hadn't actually been caught for those crimes before he may well have been thinking yeah I've got away with this and then he hears that there's a witness and he just thinks oh god and I do think like whilst he's drinking anyway and he's he is a drunk he then this is the point where he really does start to try and almost like blank things out with drinking he just gets worse and worse and worse and it just spirals we've all done it I mean, not to this extent, but... No, no, I mean blanking things out with drink. (laughs) Yeah. The police had tried to kind of trap Speck as well, so they got in touch with his brother-in-law, told him to tell Speck that a job had come up and they wanted him to head to the union hall for an assignment. So that would have worked probably in normal times, except the ship that they named had already left a few days before and Speck knew this and this tipped him off. So he packed his bags, he grabbed his drinking buddy and he called a cab. And somehow his luck continued because when plainclothes police officers arrived at the bar asking about a tall blonde guy, Speck just kept his head down and continued playing pool just feet from them. The barman was no help to the police 
And then while he was talking to the police, the cab arrived and Speck just went out to go catch his cab. They hadn't realised that he was literally stood there the whole time. I mean, if if you if you're kind of asking around, wouldn't you at least take a cursory look at the patrons of that bar just in case? I think that it it was kind of so quick succession though. They'd gone, they'd spoken to the barman. Did you have a guy? Did you see anybody covered in blood? Have you got anyone staying here? And it wasn't the bar from the hotel where he was staying, so the barman just wasn't very much help. And by the time they'd finished talking to the barman, he'd already gone and got his taxi. Also, the taxi driver didn't shout out spec or anything like that. He spec, mm. he shouted something like commercial. So even that wouldn't have given anything away. It was just a commercial booking. And also, it's like it's easy with hindsight to say these things. Like, yeah. well, I do that all the time. So yeah, it's obviously it wasn't wasn't as straightforward as I'm making out. Over the following days, the police worked absolutely tirelessly to find their man, and eventually on the 19th, they had confirmation that the fingerprint matched Specs. So, do you remember I said he'd been fingerprinted when he signed up to that ship, um, and he'd had, like, a doctor's appointment stuff? They managed to properly match it, which was really, really good. So, they could actually arrest and issue an arrest warrant, rather than just looking for him as a person of interest. They knew this was their man. In the days prior, Speck had slipped through their fingers on numerous occasions, but alas, he was going to be caught. The media were alerted, the public were notified, and his picture was everywhere. Speck saw himself splashed across the papers, and by this point, he was living in this absolute dive. There weren't even rooms. The people who booked to stay there literally got a cubicle, and it was just drunks kind of like sprawled around and... He'd gone out to go get himself a drink, got himself like a bottle of cheap wine. And at the time, he then saw himself on the papers. So he like took his wine and just went back to the the grotty cubicle, knowing that they were on to him. He finished his drink and then smashed the bottle and used the glass to slice his wrist and his elbow. And he actually severed his artery. But another guy found him, rang for an ambulance and Speck was taken to the hospital where he was patched up. And then somebody recognised him, a nurse noticed it was him. So they notified the police that they had him. The police rushed to the scene and Speck was taken into surgery. And the police were just all in agreement. This guy was going to get the best care possible. They needed to keep him alive to ensure that justice was done. Mm. I, it always makes me feel really sad, like regardless of what this guy's done, which is you could never begin to justify what he's done, but the fact that he still uh, attempted to kill himself, it's, it always just makes me sad, uh, regardless of what the person's done. And he's a bad guy, but nobody deserves to feel that level of absolute desperation. I don't know if that's going to be controversial, me saying it, but yeah, I don't know, it just I, always yeah, bothers me. I totally me. disagree with you, because I think at this point, what he's done is so awful, like... I don't know like I think at least he's got some maybe some kind of remorse because that's how he feels in mm. this moment but I yeah mean, I don't think he really felt remorse I just think he didn't want to get caught could, could be yeah it was like literally his only way out not not done through guilt and disgust at what he'd done um more done as a as a way out perhaps yeah I think so. I don't know. It's, it is a difficult one, isn't it? I know, it? yeah. I feel bad for saying it, really, but that's how I honestly feel. It always makes yeah. me sad when somebody's that desperate, regardless of who it is and what they've done. And this guy is, is an awful guy. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just always bothers me. 
And so Speck was brought to trial after an impartial panel comprised of three physicians suggested by the defence and three physicians selected by the prosecution deemed that he was competent to stand trial. And they also concluded that he had not been insane at the time of the murders. So in April 1967, the trial took place and Cora's testimony in court was hugely important. Not only did she kind of get up there and tell her story and and everybody in the courtroom was was kind of like mesmerised by her story and, and obviously shocked and appalled by it, but she was such a good witness. It was so brave of her. But also this comment that he'd made about this yellow dress that he'd seen one of the girls wearing actually had she had been wearing a dress not long before that matched so it kind of showed that he had seen these girls before and the prosecution made such a good case he tried to say he was just going to rob the place but the whole thing got out of hand but they were like no you this was premeditated and also it's like I don't know you you could probably say like it got out of hand to the extent where you murdered one of the girls but to then go on and pick off seven more uh, they would have been premeditated even if you argued that the first one wasn't so that's just such a bullshit defense isn't it and to have raped gloria and i don't know whether he had raped the other women or not but there was like definite sexual overtones where he'd exposed them and left them um with like no underwear and their legs spread and stuff like that where there was definitive proof that it was like a sexual attack as well and he'd seen them before and had been what had at least watched them once it's definitely premeditated on april the 15th 1967 after just 49 minutes of deliberation the jury found richard benjamin speck guilty of the murders so the court was then cleared for the judge to give speck the death penalty however he avoided the death penalty when the supreme court changed its ruling on capital punishment so he was resentenced on november the 21st 1972 to 400 to 1200 years in prison so that's eight consecutive sentences of 50 to 150 years and then the sentence was reduced in 1973 to a new statutory maximum of 300 years so he was eligible for parole in 1977 but he was denied parole within seven minutes of his first parole hearing um, in 1976 and then at six subsequent parole hearings as well he was never going to get out i don't know like maybe they were just going through the motions but i find that mad so like literally um 12 years into his sentence in 1977 he he can be eligible for parole even though of course it was denied it's just that's just he could have been yeah it's really mad isn't it yeah and in prison he just continued to be a total douchebag so he was often caught with drugs or like distilled moonshine but none of the punishment stopped him he would say things like how am i going to get into trouble i'm here for 1200 years and i kind of get his point (laughs) i think those people in prison in in the uk that are on a whole life tariff for example they're almost invincible once they're in prison they can still be punished further and have privileges taken away and be put into isolation but those are the people that you absolutely must fear the most if you're a fellow inmate because um they're in prison for the rest of their natural life and it doesn't really matter if they kill everybody in that prison. They're not going to have their sentence extended, you know. So, yeah, I would absolutely fear those people. They are invincible. They're untouchable. 
Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? And Speck was then caught on video in 1991 as part of a documentary. On this documentary, he was seen taking cocaine and parading around in silk (laughs) panties, sporting female-like breasts that he had grown from smuggling in hormone treatments. It's so bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, like I'm not saying, you know, uh, becoming like transgender is bizarre or anything, but it's just like I didn't see that coming. The parading. Yeah. Yeah. He's on video saying to the camera, if only they knew how much fun I was having, they'd just turn me loose. He literally didn't give a shit that he was in prison. He was just having the time of his life. And I think I think it was the use of the term silk panties that made me laugh I mostly. I knew that that word would freak you out. It t- totally did, yeah. I can just I can actually picture him just like with his boobs out, in his silk little panties, hoovering up a few lines of coke and having a little dance around the prison. I can literally picture it him doing that. Like this shouldn't be happening. Like he should not be getting away with this. No. And it's just horrendous because from behind the camera You hear a prisoner asking, why did he kill those nurses? And he just shrugs and says, it wasn't their night. And so these tapes were part of an investigation and they were kind of like an investigative journalist had looked at prisons and the behaviours within prisons. So this was actually broadcast on the A&E Network's investigative reports. They were used to actually argue for the death penalty, which I can totally see because this guy has got no remorse and he's there saying, I'm having a whale of a time. Um, But John Schmail, the brother of one of the nurses, said it was a really painful experience watching him talk about how he killed my sister. Um, Because Speck even described what needs to be done when you're strangling a victim. So whilst it is quite comical to imagine him in his silk panties and Stop saying panties, Um, It totally freaks me. (laughs) Stop fucking saying it. Stop saying panties. Um, I know it freaks you out, that's why so I can say it. I can't Sorry. remember what I was going to say because it's completely clouded my mind. No, what I was going to say is, yeah, it's like it's so wrong. I'd like to think that wouldn't be able to happen now that he'd be able to go on camera and describe how to strangle someone because he's he's essentially describing and reliving how he murdered those yeah. eight girls and probably getting off on that. Um, and that, that would have been, of course, that would have been awful for any family members of the victims to see and hear. And I, I think we are a bit more compassionate now to victims and their families and their memories. So I, I don't think, I know that's in America. It might be a bit different there. I don't, I don't live there. I don't know, but certainly here. And I'd like to think any, any of the Western world that wouldn't be allowed to happen now. No, I don't think so. And Speck then died on the 5th of December 1991 from a heart attack, just one day away from turning 50. Nobody claimed his body, and his sister had told her children never to let anyone know who their uncle had been. So I I kind of felt some vindication that he didn't get that sort of, like, I don't know, there was no public outpouring of grief from anybody for him at the point of his death. But I just kind of want... I didn't know how to finish this episode. It's just it's just such a like anticlimax from him yeah. as in he just he just died and then that was that and I don't know, I just don't feel like his victims really got much justice. I just feel like the only person out of this that I could kept on kind of coming back to was Cora and just how incredibly brave she was. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know um, I, I suppose she went on to lead a very quiet life away from the media spotlight, but it'd be really interesting to know what became of her and whether she was able to move on with her life or whether it, as I suspect, had a lasting impact on her. I haven't really been able to find much about her. So I'm not surprised. I really yeah. hope 
I hope that that's because she's able to have a private life and she's just got on with life. I mean, the only good thing is, I suppose he did serve, what, like, getting on for 25 years in prison. Um, so there is some justice there. But equally, when, when you see that footage then of him taking drugs and dancing around in some silk panties, living his best prison bitch life, um, yeah, that that's not really justice, is it, if he's really enjoying being behind bars. So there we go. Thank you so much, Victoria, for suggesting this case and for your um kind of get in touch with us and for, for listening to the show as well thank you very much and um thank you everybody for listening to this week's episode yeah hopefully we'll have something a bit less gruesome for next week um so we, we will see you then um get in touch in all the usual ways but until next time we will uh we'll catch you later bye bye